Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. We've come to the final chapter of this wonderful book Paul wrote to the Galatian church, probably the, the first letter that he wrote as he was carrying out various missionary journeys, met with the uh, other apostles and elders at Jerusalem to clarify the gospel message and writes this book uh, to a group, uh, a church not unlike any other church that would struggle uh, with the clarity of the message of the gospel. Uh, we think, well, that would never happen, but it happens over and over where the gospel is clearly preached at the beginning. The church grows. God gives a great multiplication to the church. And the message of being right with God happens by faith in the work of Christ, uh, gains momentum. And people are freed from the guilt of their sin, freed from the penalty of their sin, free from the power of sin, free to love God, free to serve God, free to love each other and to serve each other. The gospel brings freedom. That's what this book's about, is freedom. Uh, but it doesn't take long for the ugly head of legalism to creep up that says it can't be that easy. There's just no way. In fact, this is exactly what happened in Galatia. The Judaizers came in and looked around and said, yes, belief in Christ, but you must also do this, this, and this to be sure you're right with God. And this slowly but surely begins to set up a trust in works, a trust in things we do to be right with God. And it supplants the gospel, the true message of the gospel. So Paul writes Galatians to confront legalistic thinking, thinking that would take away from the work of Christ and somehow add to it our works. And so he corrects the brethren back in the first century and every century since has benefited from what the apostle says to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The last two chapters of Galatians put into practical application forms the way we live out the truth of the freedom that we have in the gospel. One objection to this message of the gospel that might have come from the legalists would have been, well, if you tell them that, they'll just do whatever they want. And so he corrects that and says, no, that's not how it works. We're sons and daughters of God and we'll obey based on the fact that we are the children of God. So there will be a reaction to this grace of God that gives us to good works. And then as time goes on, will recognize the maturity in our lives and the lives of others, then we are taught to walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. That's what's the content of chapter 5. That's what's focused upon there. But still, even knowing this, we've spoken openly about the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. There will be times when we fall into sin. Christians fall into sin. Everybody. Sometimes very abruptly and seriously so. So he writes to speak to this very poignantly. Hear now God's word, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
how relevant it is to our lives. These many centuries later, this message still speaks volumes to us in the church. We recognize that we sin, there will be sin. Father, I pray that you'd help us to respond just the way we have been instructed by your word to restore the one who has been caught in transgression gently. I ask God that you would give our church great strength in this area and help us, nurture us, O Lord. Give us a testimony for the world that confronts sin but does so in a way that is loving, compassionate, and seeks the glory of Jesus. The restoration of a sinner. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I have had the wonderful occasion, the memorable occasion, of having uh, been witness to many broken bones. Can't forget any one of them. Every specific time I, in my own case, I broke, had my own leg broken. I remember it just like it was yesterday when I talk about it. In fact, every time it gets cold out, I feel it again in my ankle. I remember. But one such instance that never leaves me, since I coach soccer and still play a little bit, I see various injuries that occur, and I remember one that happened my senior year in high school. There was a, a guy a year younger than me, played behind me on the defensive line, and I was in the midfield. And I remember him colliding with another defender, shin to shin, and my friend's leg was broken severely. I remember, I remember the sound being like a yardstick that you would snap over your leg. That kind of a sound. It was a compound fracture, meaning the bone came out of his leg. I was the first one on the scene, and there he is holding his leg in disbelief and in shock, and I can tell just by the, the grotesque shape of his leg it was really bad. And so I was the first one there, and, and normally that didn't bother me so much. I'd seen some breaks before, but being the first one and seeing my friend in pain, I was, I was like in shock myself. I can't even describe the feeling I had was just didn't know what to do, wanted to do something but couldn't do anything, didn't want to touch it. I was freaked out, totally freaked out. Now, there are three different reactions you can have when you come upon a broken bone in someone like that, at least three that you can witness. First one is I could see it and just... Ignore it. No, this can't be. No way. Or maybe minimize it. Oh, hey, you're okay. I mean, come on, get up, get up, come on. That's one possibility. Second possibility could be to look at the injury and the grotesqueness of it and say, that will never be right again. Cut it off. Here, bite this bullet. I'm going to saw. Let's just get... Get it out of here. It's busted up, broken. You have no use for it anymore. Get rid of it. That'd be another possibility. The third possibility, which I experienced when I broke my leg and my friend experienced when his leg was broken, is to work to restore it. Yes, it's serious. And it's going to hurt initially. But we've got to get this leg and set it. Get it cleaned up, set right. There might have to be a couple screws put in, a cast put on. Weeks and months will go by. Therapy will be part of it. But we're going to get it back to where it was before. In fact, it's quite possible it might end up actually being stronger if it's set right and restored properly and patience is exacted and care. Why is it that we do not confront sin the same way we would confront that kind of a break? To see it restored. Instead, we ignore it. Act like it's not there. Or we minimize it. Oh, it's not that bad. Everybody does it. Or the pendulum swings. As soon as we know there might be sin in our midst, cut them out. Get rid of them. They're useless anymore. They're just giving us a bad name. Let's get rid of them. That's the pendulum that much, much of Christendom deals with. Ignore it or cut it out. When the biblical model very clearly 
is to restore it. You know what? Restoration is a hard work. It's slow. It's painful. It's a careful process that demands patience. But that's what the Bible calls us to do. The people of God, when anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. That's the picture we have that Paul gives. And I would say to you as an extension of what this verse teaches us, for us corporately, the spiritual maturity of a church, you could say this of individuals, is evidenced by how it reacts to and relates with brothers or sisters who, are, who fall into sin. Now let's look at the passage together and unpack this a bit. First of all, we see in the first half of the first verse that Christians can fall into sin. We could go so far as to say they will fall into sin at some point, bearing levels. But Christians can abruptly and sharply fall into sin at times. This occurs. Look what it says. Brothers, and notice it says brothers. It's not a general instruction given. This is no longer directed at just the Judaizers and their errors. But Paul's saying to the church, brothers, Christians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. So Christians can fall into sin. Caught in any transgression is not a reference to the common battle with sin each of us have and lose and microwaves all the time. Not to minimize any sin. But you know and I know that the battle between the spirit and the flesh is ongoing and there are various failures and victories we experience throughout the course of a day. That's true of the Christian life. And God grants us grace. He grants us repentance on the spot often when we recognize it or, or on an interpersonal level it's dealt with immediately. And we see that as a part of our regular existence, you might say, normal existence as Christians battling with sin. We've been speaking of this battle, flesh versus spirit. But here, caught in transgression seems to indicate there's an abrupt fall, something that happens that's of real significance to the community life. So a more scandalous sin or one that becomes more evident is must be dealt with on the spot. And I think we know what this means. Something big happens and it affects the rest of the community because we're family members. That's what's being spoken of. It seems to be that which is in view. Now, we shouldn't be surprised, really, because there will be failures in our lives, in the midst of us. Now, personally, what surprises me most, especially when something becomes public with leaders and pastors of churches and directors of various ministries, uh, prominent people, what surprises me most about those particular falls, as we call them, really isn't the fact that they fall. Maybe as a fellow pastor, I, I, I don't find it that hard to believe that a pastor could fall into sin. I'm a sinner. What I continually find amazing is how surprised everybody is when it happens. I mean, they're shocked. You know, if it happens on a, on a national level, the media zooms in on, on the seemingly lost sheep of that particular congregation, usually a massive congregation, and they don't really even know their shepherd that well or know his fallenness just in general. Uh, and so there's a sense in which they've built him up bigger and bigger and bigger. And when he falls, they look just devastated. And the news just zones in on that. And that's what shocks me about the church, that we would be so shocked by sin. Uh, and it definitely tells us that at least in those places when that happens, and I'm sure this is to some degree everywhere, it, there's not a proper preparation for or understanding of how deep our depravity runs and the possibilities that are actually there for us to fall into sin. Maybe it's just that we do know that, and so we hope that a few individuals who are leaders 
They'll be different than us. And then when they're not, it really devastates us. Whatever the case, we've got to wrap our minds around the fact that Christians will sin. That, that will happen. And some will have serious falls. And God gives us these instructions for just such occasions. For all of us to act out, live out, work upon. You know, the issue is not so much the reality of sin in the church. That has always been true. And it's a constant battle. The issue is whether or not we address that sin and how we address it. That's really what this passage is all about. And ultimately, when we properly address sins in the midst of the body of Christ, it contributes further to our joint dependence upon the grace of God for us. And when that happens, we become more humbled, and humility is the thing that God actually exalts. So the address of sin, the way Scripture outlines here, and in other parts of Scripture, will help us actually to see the witness of Christ enhanced, not diminished, when we're honest about it and we deal with it. There's no reason whatsoever for us to ignore it or minimize it and act like it's not there. That does nothing for the testimony of Christ. Certainly, the calling is not to cut it out and act as though damaged goods could never be of any service or use again in the church. That can't be the option either. That's certainly not what Jesus taught. Certainly not what Paul said. But the hard work in between, which we're looking at now, demands us to prayerfully consider what is given as instruction for addressing sin. Christians can and will fall into sin at times, and sin, therefore, must be addressed in the body of believers. Look at this point shown in verse 1 again. If anyone is caught in any transgressions, ignore it, forget about it, stick it to them. No, it says you who are spiritual should restore him. Restoration is a process. It's not immediate. Sin has to be addressed. That's what's emphasized in this introductory verse of this chapter. It's not that sin upsets the church and the testimony of Christ the most. It's unaddressed sin. It's unconfronted sin. It's unrepentant sin. That's what does damage to the name of Jesus at large. And being honest about our propensity to sin should not shock us like it does. In fact, I don't think the world is as shocked as some Christians act sometimes when it happens. You know what happens when we react wrongly to sin? Think about it. What happens when we ignore it or we minimize sin in the body of believers? First, it slowly but surely becomes acceptable. If we just ignore it or minimize it, say it's not that bad. Eventually, it'll become acceptable. Eventually, it actually becomes justified and defended. That's the next step of ignoring or minimizing sin. Such a church, eventually, when trying to minimize, ignore it, accepting it, defending it, eventually they'll become duller and duller, number and number to the Word of God. The Word of God will seem more archaic. It'll seem less relevant, so judgmental, so intolerant. In all these efforts to justify sin, ignore it, minimize it, that is what happens then God's word will actually get distorted. It'll get made to say something it doesn't say. Plain reading no longer becomes a plain reading because we've got to make a way for this to fit with what we want to do. The result is misery for that church, for the unrepentant sinners. No matter how smiley we are on the outside, the way of the transgressor is hard and it's tough. We, The one thing we have to guide us that's reliable, we're basically distorting to justify whatever we want to do. That's what happens when sin is ignored and minimized. 
total loss of testimony for Christ and the gospel of God's grace as a hellish tolerance takes hold. Imagine if you just left that busted up compound fractured leg to sit. Infection sets in. Maybe there's no immediate pain because it goes numb on them. But they, you, they lose usage of it. Disease sets in and they could eventually die from the infection that comes in. Ignoring and minimizing does not do anything for the testimony of Christ or for any individual. So, how should we address the sins? Well, Matthew 18 gives us the process, and it's a careful process. Jesus gives instruction. If someone sins against you, you're supposed to interpersonally go to them and share that with them. Then you discuss that. If it's agreed upon and repentance is there, the person says, yes, that's what has happened, then you've gained a brother and there's, there's restoration. Brothers and sisters, if we would just practice that at a base level, so much of what comes to uh, public view would have been avoided. If we are honest with each other and love each other enough to talk in that level. That, that's painful at times. Because the one coming isn't always right. They may be wrong. That's why you discuss it in deceit. Now, if Jesus says, if it doesn't work where you and your brother or your sister can't work it out, then go and get a witness, another mature believer. He was spiritual, Galatians says. We'll get there in a moment. You go and try to confirm it, and the three of you together try to see if this can be established and if repentance will be there. If not, then take it to the church. And in our sense, we view the, the eldership of the church, those you choose to represent you, that they take it into view and analyze the situation and give direction, and hopefully repentance happens there. If it doesn't, then we have to be removed from the church, and people have to know what happened. There's a process for this that is careful in Matthew 18. But Galatians 6 doesn't deal so much with the process as it does with the demeanor and the attitude and the approach we ought to have. So we take these together when we deal with it in the church. Very important. How should this happen? We'll look at the passage. First, we see that sin must be addressed by those who are spiritual. Look at verse 1. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Who is spiritual? What does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritual? Does it mean the person who's the, the monk uh, who separates themselves and, and spends long hours in fasting and prayer? That's what spiritual is? Is that what the definition of spirituality is? Someone who does their quiet time, more witnesses to more people, memorizes most ver- more verses, has a, a special visitation of the Holy Spirit or all sorts of different kinds of things that would deem someone spiritual. Is that what spiritual is? Well, we've just spent three weeks studying the fruit of the Spirit. So now spiritual must mean What has just come before, the one who's walking by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, living in the Spirit, this is what it means to be spiritual. The Holy Spirit working in their life, and the main way in which the Holy Spirit does this is by the revealed Word of God, the Bible, integrated into the life of one who's growing in Christ. That should typify every believer at some level, and it's true. At some level, in that first level of Matthew 18, every person who has the Spirit of God indwelling them, who trusts Christ For their salvation, they have the Holy Spirit. So we have at least that level in which we can relate with one another. But Paul does not shy away from the fact that by saying this, not everybody's at the same level of spirituality. In fact, that's why you choose leaders to represent you who fit a certain description of maturity that we all want to obtain and all of us are called to live towards. But God, over time, has revealed that some should be appointed as elders and should work in the process of pastoring the flock, gently restoring. And so those who are spiritual, we could say, in the sense of going through the basic levels, 
would really mean for the elders to ultimately oversee this process of restoration, that it happens at the base level with each of us interacting, and then as it rises to the level they have to address it, that they would manifest the kinds of things that Galatians is instructing us regarding. Those who are spiritual should oversee this process in the midst of the body of believers on a continual basis to make sure it's happening interpersonally and at a larger corporate level. But also notice that sin must be addressed not only by those who are spiritual, but it must be addressed in order to accomplish something. And the accomplishing of restoration is what is in view. That's why we confront sin, to see the brother or see the sister restored. And we don't mean that they lose their salvation once they sin, but they certainly lose that clear fellowship with God that we have as we're walking by the Spirit. And it can take time, depending on what the sin is, for that sense of security and assurance to return. So we want to restore them to that sense of assurance that they had, that they probably lost by the sin. So restoring, seeing healing. But let's be clear, that's not the only goal of confronting sin. We know from Scripture that there are other reasons. Uh, maintaining God's glory and testimony is, is weighted upon the address of sin. If you don't address sin, that cycle of ignored sin will happen and the testimony of God will be lowered. But also, it's a, it's a helpful deterrent to us when we see sin being addressed. It could be, in the most positive sense, something that helps us to say no to sin when we recognize that it should be confronted. So there's multiple reasons why sin is addressed. But very personally and pastorally and with a shepherd's touch, recognize that we want to see restoration. We don't want to say, I got you, I caught you, finally found you out. No, restore, the word here in verse 1 means to heal. Just like setting a broken bone, to set it so that it can heal right. And it will be difficult. The setting process hurts. I remember like yesterday when two doctors were setting my leg after I broke it. And I remember them talking about what they had to do to get this thing put in the right place. And they even gave me a shot that was supposed to kill the pain. But it, I'm telling you, it hurts. And they kept saying, I kept saying, is it said? Is it done? Is it done? And I'm screaming. Uh, but the fact is, and they felt bad, but they had to get it right or the long-term effect of it would have been very poor for me and they would not have helped me even though it hurt up front. So the initial confrontation is difficult. It can be painful, but that sets up the healing, addressing the issue. Restoration is the end goal, and so over time, something will begin to be normal again, maybe even stronger. But also we learn from this passage in verse 1 again that sin must be addressed with gentleness. Should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, verse 1 says. You recall, hopefully last week, that gentleness is one of the nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. And gentleness is, is really a disposition that flows from a, a base humility that someone has, a realization of someone's position before God, a thankful softness about their relationship with people because they recognize what they've been forgiven themselves. Gentleness is one of the expressions of this understanding. It's not that you're some hyper-pacifist or weak, but rather... Rather, you don't need to use harshness to bolster your position. Someone's caught in sin. It's not like there needs to be a harsh debate over it. Gently point out and recognize what now next needs to happen. Gentleness. Careful consideration is given about the person, their spiritual well-being, where they are in life, 
all the various things that are working in their life. I'm not saying it all changed the way the view of the sin, but the person dealing with it is a person. And there are many things going on in their lives, many shaping influences that have come into this place. Then you also have to consider the community, how this affects the community. They are a family member of. All these things have to be carefully considered as we gently work towards restoration with gentleness. I think how a church works to restore a fallen brother or sister is a huge test of spirituality and maturity. Over the last few years, I've become aware of two cases where a sizable church as a prominent pastor fell. One was national, one was more local. In both, I analyzed them and heard interviews with one of the pastors after, and then I happened to meet a person who helped with the, the attempted restoration of the second. And a common denominator happened that was disturbing. In both cases, the initial response seemed to be very compassionate, especially for the guy's family. And uh, up front, you got the picture that there was a railing around and a compassion and so forth. But in both cases, pretty shortly thereafter, uh, the guy was more or less cut off. Uh, families were still upheld to some degree because they were the victims. The church viewed it as such. And so those guys were more or less cut off. Now, some of it was their fault, no doubt. Uh, but when a person is in this spot, they have a broken leg and it's severe. Uh, you do weird things sometimes to defend yourself or to make yourself better. And there was, seemed to be a, a very short amount of patience in these situations. And after the months went on, they got, they got cut off more and more as it, as it occurred. And the common denominator seemed to be this lack of gentleness that understands that it will not be just initially when the firestorm happens. But there is a long process of restoration that needs to be seen through. And it does take patience, and it is painful. And it seems there is where we struggle with gentleness over the long haul to help this restorative process happen. I know that it is also related with the fact that in the same cases, the teaching that was going on there did not prepare them for that gentleness. So it was almost like they walked into the very congregation that they had prepared, and they reacted the way they were taught. To some degree. That's why, by the way, the message of the gospel of grace is so important to the foundations of our church. I mean, everything has to go back to the gospel that saved us is the same gospel that helps us with sin in an ongoing way. So I hope that's the foundation that God is giving us grace to be building here, no matter what the case. Sin has to be addressed with gentleness. But also look at the passage again. In the new light, see that sin must be addressed with realistic caution. Very careful words. Keep watch on yourself, verse 1, lest you too be tempted. Be realistic about your potential to fall into the same sin. I know it's natural to us at some level to see someone caught in sin and say, I would never do that. Brothers or sisters, when you say that, beware. Beware. That's usually a sign of one who is actually ready to fall. Maybe not that particular area, because one thing is tough for another and maybe not for you, but it'll be something else, and it just starts to open up a touch of pride that I could not do that. You know what, I even know, pastorally, someone sitting here now thinking that. Really check yourself when you think like that, because I know too many stories where they start by telling their testimony of, I never thought I could do that or this. It's a dangerous statement. It overestimates our strength and underestimates our potential for sinning. And this is why I believe the Apostle says, keep watch on yourself during this restorative process, lest you too be tempted. And he says very bluntly, look at verse 3, what the Apostle says. 
never gives us a second to stop and pat ourselves on the back. For if anyone thinks he is something, guess what? You're nothing. He doesn't say, well, you're, you know, you're okay. No, if you think you're something, he's nothing. You need to deceive yourself. Be honest. Our sadness about someone caught in sin should really be directed at our joined propensity and tendency to sin more than our disappointment with that person. This is what Paul refers to, I think, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Realistic caution is so important. Sin also must be addressed with empathy. We see this in the last part of verse 1 again and then in verse 2. Keep watching yourselves lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. That's the empathy. Feel for the other, for others. And so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is loving God and loving others. The Ten Commandments, loving God and loving others. Jesus personifies the Ten Commandments. To fulfill the law of Christ is to love God and then to love others. This is what is being spoken of, spoken of with regard to fulfilling the law of Jesus. We have empathy for one another. We know our shared weakness and lament the fall of another. And we say, but by the grace of God, there go I. Bear one another's burdens. When this happens, it's, it's heavy on a person. Bear their burden. I think of so many ways in which even little things we do can help someone with their burden. You know, on a daily basis, so much happens around the church that it goes unnoticed. And I think of our two administrative assistants, and we have others in the school as well, but Joan and Lydia who work at, for the church. The Joan and Lydia have myself, Brian, Nathan, and John constantly uh, requiring all sorts of things of them. And uh, they consistently, without really asking or expecting uh, as part of their duties, will come and ask us, in addition to what we already give them, will ask us if there are ways that they can do things that will help us do the main thing we're supposed to be doing. They do it regularly. And that's a very similar picture. They, they, they come asking, can I bear something for you? Because even if it may be a little thing, that little thing is just one less piece of weight on my back. And if we bear one another's burdens, especially in this area of sin, the weight of it, I don't mean group therapy where we all sit around and talk about how sinful we are, and boy, I'm glad everybody's really that bad too. I don't mean that. I mean lamenting over the fact of what sin does in our lives and asking for God's help together to fill the law of Christ. Verse 4 and verse 5 give us a final part of this picture of restoration of the sinner. It says, but let each one test his own work. That his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Now, we already know that we shouldn't think something of ourselves when we are nothing. What he's speaking of here has to do with the, the tendency we have to compare ourselves with others so that we don't feel as bad about our own sins. In other words, we can look around this room and say, the person sitting next to me sins way worse than I do. So I'm okay. Or, and that could give you this false sense of pride. Or you might look next to you and say, man, I'm not as righteous as they are. And now you have this sense of discouragement. He's saying, quit comparing yourself with each other. The standard is God, not the person sitting next to you. So that's not the way in which you should view your life. Don't view it among peers. Rather, look to the standard of God and understand before God, you have to stand before him based on your standing, not someone else's. And we already know from what the book says that our standing ought to be, has to be in Christ. 
That's the ultimate standard. And if we're in Christ, he'll judge Christ. And we're good if that's what happens. But if we stand on our own, then we've got the problem. Big problem. Each will have to bear his own load. I think that when we compare with each other, we have such a higher estimation of ourselves than we care to admit. It's the kind of stuff that none of us will say because we know how ridiculous it sounds. But we think in ourselves, I know at least there's always someone else who's been worse than I am. And when we think about it like that, I think it compares unto many things that we start out thinking we finished really well. Have you ever taken a test at school and they post it outside and you're sure you did really well? At least my experience was it never turned out as good as I thought it was. And I look in the list and start at the top, then my eyes start going down. Recently, I was in this triathlon, which was kind of a personal goal I had. Well, I found out doing it that I'm not a triathlete. Uh, I don't run very fast. I don't. Sw- I swim even slower. I thought I rode a bike faster than I did until a 60-year-old guy ripped up a hill past me. With all due respect to the 60-year-olds out there. You know, I, got, I didn't want to look at the finishing list. There was like 400 people, but something drew me to see how I did. And I kept telling myself, well, not many people do triathlon. So, I mean, the fact that I finished it, and there was a bunch of people behind me. I saw them. So I couldn't have done that bad. So I go online, and I looked up the electronic thing, and I'm going down the list, down the list. Down I go to my age. I wish they had a weight limit on it. That would have helped. I'm sure I would have finished on the top of my weight limit. And I get down to the middle, and down to the below the middle, the bottom quarter of the 400 people, there's my name. I'm telling you, as good as you think you are, you're not as high in the list as you think. So don't compare yourself with others. That is not how we develop a restorative community, by comparing with how righteous or unrighteous the guy or girl next to us is. We're all unrighteous. And only the righteousness of Christ makes us right with God. Praise Him for that. Now, when sin happens, let's, with humility, approach it in that light. Recognizing any of us can fall into it, we need God's grace, but let's see restoration happen so that the bone will be set and it may take time. And there are sins that cause ongoing ramifications that are never quite right in this life, but it doesn't mean that the church can't restore that brother or that sister and give them the sense of assurance that they so desperately need in the grace of God. We can see that happen in a, in a community of grace that understands the gospel. Because the gospel is not something that just happens when you walked an aisle, filled out a card, or raised your hand. The gospel is when you recognize it's only Christ's righteousness that makes me right with God, given to me by faith. That same message helps me 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whenever it happens in any sin that befalls us, that same gospel brings us back to that point of dependence that we always need to have. And that will grant a community a total different foundation and outlook when sin happens. And I would tell you that once a community starts to act that way, the world will have no other option but to take note of it. Wait a minute, they're not ignoring it or blowing it off or saying it's okay? Yet they're not killing their wounded when they're down. They're working to restore while keeping a standard that God has so clearly given. Now that's different. That's otherworldly. And that is what the church is called to do. And we can, by God's Spirit and by His Word that has been given to us, let us be that kind of community with humility, asking God constantly to help us with this. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this clear instruction in Galatians 6. Help us to be conformed to it. I pray for your spirit to work in our midst. When a sin is, becomes known, that we will work to restore. Lord, we need confrontation. We need con- correction. We need instruction.
But we also need an ongoing encouragement that takes time, takes patience, demands gentleness. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us this. And Lord, not just for our own personal comfort, but so the world might see and know that the gospel is true from the beginning to the end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 353. I love thy kingdom, Lord. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2. The elders come to prepare the table for the Lord's Supper. <laughs> 